Welcome to the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Have you ever wanted to live life better, but found yourself baffled, bewildered, and bored by complicated, confusing, and condescending advice? This podcast is the antidote. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP, lifestyle medicine specialist, and author of Fit for Purpose. Each episode, I'm joined by leading experts as we explore different areas that affect our everyday lives. This is the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Welcome to Wellbeing for Real Life. Today, we're talking about sleep. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP with a special interest in cardiovascular and lifestyle medicine. Um, my guest on the show today is Dr. Asim Alhotra. Asim, rather than have me introduce you, could you just tell us briefly a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a consultant cardiologist. I qualified in 2001 from Edinburgh Medical School. Uh, so I've been practicing you know, in medicine now for almost two decades. I have a special interest in lifestyle medicine and in, in prevention. I'm also a visiting professor of evidence-based medicine. And my personal mission is to save lives a million at a time. Okay. That's a very impressive personal mission. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's something just to aim for, you know, and hopefully we'll, we'll save a few lives on the way. Absolutely. And one of the, the things that we're going to be talking about today is sleep, which obviously is a pretty important thing when it comes to saving lives. I just thought we could, if we could each start, we could describe maybe something that we're really happy about with our sleep and maybe an area where we either struggle or would like to do a bit of improvement. Would you like to, to bear your soul and go first? Yeah, Richard. So I think actually, interestingly for me, you know, I'm somebody that uh, certainly tries to, and most of the time will follow my own advice. I think the one area which I probably can improve on is making sure I get good quality sleep. Evidence does tell us, as you as you well know this, that ideally we should all be getting at least seven to eight hours of good quality sleep a night. It's very important for mental health, for physical health. It's, you know, the time when uh, a lot of the repair mechanisms of the body are going on. For me, I think that that's one area where I've not been very consistent. And I think most of it, for me personally, is often things that are out of my control. So external stresses that then influence your sleep. So I try and make a habit of, uh, you know, the things I'm, I'm good at when it comes to sleep is I've got a very, a very consistent routine in terms of making sure I go to bed early. I've always been someone that likes to go to bed early. Uh, certainly during the working week, I like to be in bed by sort of 9, 9.30 uh, at the latest. You know, I'll read before I go to sleep. And falling asleep has never been an issue for me, but it's sometimes waking up in the night. And often, you know, waking up in the night is related to the stresses of the day. Mm. I think uh, one thing I've learned and something that, you know, other people can also think about is that if you're in an environment which is relatively stress-free, and that can even be, you know, being around people that you care about, or it can be that you're on holiday. You know that your sleep, generally, certainly from my perspective, is a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I find that I don't have a problem with the, the quality of my sleep when I've had it measured with, with electronically. Uh, I sleep really well quality-wise, but I haven't always given myself the quantity. And it sounds like you've you've got a good routine in that you often go to bed at a sensible time. I've rarely ever gone to bed at sensible o'clock until probably in the last, well, in the last three, four, five years where, you know, as part of my developing an interest in lifestyle medicine, I had to grudgingly concede that maybe I should be thinking a bit more about this and, and practicing what I preach. And having a wife that insists on going to bed early has really helped me. I, I used to be slightly resentful of that. And now I find it really helpful. I look forward to my, to my bedtimes. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I find as well, uh, Richard, when I've 
had periods where, you know, I've been able to maybe go away, you know, spend time with um, my extended family. Very quickly, it's interesting how I notice within the space of a few days, I'm suddenly waking up later. I've got a, you know, instead of waking up at, say, half three or four a.m., I'm, I'm sleeping till six a.m. Mm. And, and it's just amazing how, and, I, and the only change has been a less stressful and so-called, I think, happier environment. You know, for me, I think it's slightly unique. Maybe everyone's different. I live on my own. Uh, and I think that for, is probably one of the downsides of living on, on, on your own is, for me anyway, is actually that in itself probably has some kind of impact on my sleep because mm. having people around you, even if you've got flatmates or whatever else, I think it helps build emotional resilience. You know, I see that with other people, some of my patients, for example, as well. You know, the, the, these, are the, these are the things that are really important. And, you know, moving on from that, what's really interesting and what I've learned, you know, just a couple of interesting anecdotes. Uh, some, you know, I'll name, there are t- certainly two very famous sportsmen. One being Roger Federer, as you know, the tennis player, who's probably one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And the other one is a basketball player in America called LeBron James. Huge, very, very famous, successful basketball player. And both of those individuals are very, very proactive in telling people or explaining to people that one of the secrets to their success and longevity as athletes, as sportsmen, is the fact that they are obsessive about getting good quality sleep. So Roger Federer, you know, I read somewhere, claims that he actually gets 11 hours of sleep a day. And that's the reason he's still playing great tennis, you know, where most tennis players have retired, he's still playing, you know, fantastic Grand Slam tennis. And LeBron James says he will get at least eight to 10 hours of sleep a day. So get eight hours, you know, and he has discipline since when he goes to bed, et cetera, during the, during the nighttime. But he'll also have, um, he'll take two hours out of his day in the afternoon to have a nap. And, yep. it, you know, so th- it's fascinating. I think it's something that we haven't focused on enough. And even if we're aware of it, we a lot of people probably don't know, or don't have the tools or don't have the... Uh, the education, if you like, to try and improve their sleep, which obviously is, you know, which your book obviously mentions quite extensively. Yeah. So so those are really great examples of, of how sleep is performance enhancing. So if we take a step back a bit, should we talk a bit about what goes on in our brains when we're asleep? I think that could be quite helpful to give people an understanding of why it is that we're so interested in this. From your perspective, yeah, Asim. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to hearing... Uh, yeah, uh, hearing about that from you, Richard. Yeah, so you know, whilst I don't consider myself a, an expert on sleep, it's very easy to to learn a lot about the benefits of it. And and I think if you think about it, we spend about a third of our life asleep. And when we're asleep, we're effectively in a, a paralysed, vulnerable state. So either that's really really important for our our restoration, or it's a huge evolutionary mistake. And obviously, I think it's the the former rather than the latter. And I used to imagine when I was younger and not so bothered that maybe, you know, not a lot happened when we were asleep. We were just really dormant. But actually, there's a lot that goes on. For example, our glial cells, which are cells within our brain, shrink. And so the flow of the cerebrospinal fluid through them increases, I think, by about 60%. And that means that you can clear away a lot of the of the day's debris. Also, sleep's really important for consolidation of learning and memories. And there's good evidence to show that if you are sleep deprived, then you can potentially forget 30 or 40% of, of what you've learned, even the day or two or three days before, 
so that the importance of that is is vital and and both the rapid eye movement and the non-rapid eye movement stages of sleep both have really different important parts to play in our restoration and i think until i realized that it didn't occur to me how much was going on just whilst we were lying there apparently doing nothing uh, and so the uh, when i was younger i used to take this sort of sleep is for wimps approach you know i'll get all the sleep i need when i'm dead and i think one of the really interesting things is that from my experience i only realized the effect of a good night's sleep once i started giving it to myself and up until that stage i thought i was doing fine i thought i was functioning really well and then when i started to i did a little experiment after reading why we sleep by um, professor matthew walker it's a fantastic book i gave myself a proper 7 to 8 hours sleep every night for a couple of weeks and i realized that for a long long time even though i thought i was functioning quite well i was actually chronically sleep deprived and i suddenly found an extra 10 20% in what i was able to do in terms of my professional life my personal life it made a a huge difference have you, have you noticed in in your own life times when you've either been doing really well or or not so well from that perspective yeah no i remember even a few years ago i had a bit of a stressful period in my life just shortly after my mother died although i actually thought i was getting quantity wise good sleep i started having episodes where i was you know i'm normally i consider myself very uh, my brain is being very active my memory is as certainly above average with things i remember attention to detail you know i've got a mathematical brain and i found myself you know and, I, and and in related to what i'm about to tell you i you know i'm very uh, you know i love films one of my passions is movies and you know i i remember names of films and actors and characters and all that kind of stuff and i remember going to the cinema a trailer came up for a film i can't remember which film it was actually at the time but i couldn't the face of eddie redmayne the actor came up and i couldn't remember his name and i thought this is bizarre and i found sporadically i was forgetting you know even people the names of people i even worked with and that kind of thing anyway long story short i ended up speaking to somebody a friend of mine who's a neurologist and she actually said to me asim i think this is most likely you're not getting good quality sleep right. and uh, and there's nothing else going on and that's what you need to work on i said oh that's interesting because i've had a bit of stress going on anyway circumstances changed and i ended up getting better quality sleep and you know this this symptom if you like of me kind of not remembering you know recognizing faces of people that are well known that automatically should come to me i mean it would it would come to me eventually but it might take an hour or half an hour you know half an hour an hour for me to remember who they were uh, it, it it resolved itself but it took it took a couple of months it took a couple of months actually before mm. i suddenly felt like oh everything's back to normal again so i think that was one lesson i learned certainly when it comes to sleep i think um i think the other thing we all know richard when we've had a good night's sleep how we feel during the day you generally feel happier you're also less likely to feel you know you respond to stress better anxiety that kind of thing and when it comes to physical health we know that insulin resistance which is at the root of many chronic diseases heart disease type 2 diabetes probably uh, alzheimer's and cancer as well to some degree is influenced by making sure we get you know at least 7 to 8 hours of good quality sleep a night mm. versus you know getting less than 5 or 6 and those changes can happen physiologically within just a few days of sleep deprivation so um yeah absolutely it's 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 a really big deal stress yeah. eating if you don't if you don't if you don't get a good night's sleep you're more likely to go for those sort of dopamine enhancing comfort foods to try and lift yourself up you know there is data showing that people who don't have a good enough you know good 7 hours of quality sleep a night end up consuming more calories during the day usually from junk food mm. so it's uh, it's crucial to everything 
Absolutely. Do you think that explains my uncontrollable desire for a sort of bacon butty first thing in the in the morning if I've uh, <laughs> possibly not had enough sleep and maybe a, a couple of drinks? Do you think that that could be behind yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we know we know what it's like in the morning. I mean, even that slightly sort of you know a late night and a Friday or being out or whatever. Yeah. And you know that you're not going to get much sleep that day. You know, you come, whatever, if you come back at one, two in the morning or you're drinking with friends or whatever else, yeah. and then you wake up at the same time, you normally wake up, you've had five mm. hours sleep. And there is automatically, you know, you do feel when you wake up, you want to go for the sort of the, yeah. the, the high carbohydrate, mm. you know, meal, don't you? Your comment about the um, insulin resistance, I think, is really valid. I've seen patients who were suffering from stress in their lives, developed hypertension, perhaps some pre-diabetes. And when you chat to them, when I chatted to them, actually, in theory, they were ticking quite a lot of boxes. They were very physically active. They tried to practice a bit of sort of mental self-care, but their jobs were very stressful. Their days were very long. They had a lot of stress at home, perhaps, and they were not sleeping very well. And I've seen people completely reverse their hypertension and their prediabetes almost through doing nothing other than just getting a better night's sleep, which is incredible, isn't it? Because... You know, the alternative is potentially a lifetime of medication and doctor's yeah. appointments and the inevitable complications of, of those conditions. And yet just that simple restorative of getting yeah. a good night's sleep, free to all of us. Absolutely. I think the other thing as well, and you know, it's something that is, you know, you're reading more and more about uh, in the literature, and I'm seeing more and more patients with this issue, especially blokes, is the impact of sleep deprivation on testosterone. Right. Erectile dysfunction, for example, is increasingly common in people over the age of 40. I think the statistics are 40 to 50 percent of men over 40 will experience erectile dysfunction at some point, significant erectile dysfunction. You know, obviously for a guy, testosterone has so many roles to play in the body. It's not just about sex drive. It's about sense of well-being. It's about competitive drive Mm. and sleep deprivation. Just a few days of sleep deprivation can even crash someone's libido. So it's, you know, that's another incentive for people or people that might be suffering from are not realizing actually that is the, the key to them getting back to, you know, feeling that, that vitality again and improving their libido, et cetera, and sense of well-being is just mm-hmm. making sure they focus on their sleep. And that may well be the most important factor when it comes to hormones yeah. like testosterone. We've had a good conversation around quite a few of these topics. One of the things that we try to do in this podcast is to really keep it practical for people so should we each give a few of our top tips then for a good night's sleep and i'd like to touch upon one to start with which i think you've already mentioned which is the importance of of routine we know that our body clocks are are roughly a a 24-hour cycle and i used to do this thing where i would wake up early in the mornings during the week but i I try to give myself a um a line at weekends and and i didn't realize that sort of sleep deprivation during the week trying to compensate for it on a saturday and a sunday didn't really work i just ended up kind of jet lagged so my first tip would be i I encourage my patients and my colleagues to really try and roughly go to bed and get up at the same time each day of the week if they can give or take you know obviously life can be a little bit different depending on your your circumstances at weekends etc but i really recommend that and i think if people can anchor that with other bits that make the routine quite solid such as morning being also the time when they go for a walk or get do some other kind of physical activity then you're combining a regular sleep and wake time with physical activity and also light exposure so that really just kind of anchors that all together so my top tip would be certainly a good routine how about you 
Yeah, I completely agree with you, Richard. I think the one thing I would add in especially these days is become a major issue for many people and they don't even realize it. I've got, I won't name them, but certain relatives as well who I know are having their sleep, quality sleep interfered with because they're addicted to social media. So we know that screen time, for example, certainly closer to bedtime is going to have an impact on your sleep quality. It might even interfere with you going to sleep or it might, you might be able to sleep, you know, fall asleep quite easily, but then wake up later on. So I, you know, recommend to my patients as well that you really, you should try and be off from screens for at least one to two hours, ideally two to three hours if you can before bedtime, getting off social media, getting off your phone, keeping your mobile phone out of the bedroom. Absolutely. Uh, These are some, I think it's a really important tip for people. And you can notice a big difference once you get into that habit of of saying, okay, I'm not going to be, the last thing I do before I go to bed is not going onto social media and Mm. and looking at whatever Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. That has been shown to have quite a big impact on sleep Mm. quality. And that would be my other joint favorite tip. I absolutely agree. You've beaten me to that one. I think it's not just the whole blue white light and lowering our levels of melatonin, but it's also that activating our brains as we disappear down those those rabbit holes of uh, yeah. of anxiety and the fear of missing out etc yeah. um so so i absolutely endorse that i seem i think that's fantastic another one that i tend to suggest to patients is talking about avoiding drugs that are going to disrupt your sleep for me the big two are, are caffeine and alcohol really so yeah. you know we probably all know i've got a friend who who could drink a double espresso an hour before he goes to bed and sleep like a baby but he, he's probably unusual so I yes. recommend to people who are struggling that they try to avoid their caffeine after midday. Yes. Ideally. 100% agree with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the half-life of caffeine is six hours, so you've still effectively got a quarter in your body at midnight if, you, yeah. if you've had your cup at midday. And obviously, if you're sensitive to the acts of caffeine, that's an issue. And then the other one, of course, is alcohol, which I'm sure that you speak to your patients a lot about as well. And we know that alcohol, although it's a sedative, it's not a restorative drug. One of my a friend's wired me up once with a heart rate variability monitor to look at fitness and recovery. And I did a trial on myself. And the first night, I wore it for three or four nights. And the first night, I just drank no alcohol, no phones, went to bed at a sensible time. And the next night, I had a couple of drinks and looked at my phone for just 15 minutes. And the effect on the objectively measurable data overnight that showed how well I had recovered, or in the second night, not recovered, was staggering. It was really really quite sobering so the combination of the alcohol and looking at social media was a really oh, was deadly okay, lethal yeah. basically when it comes to sleep but i'm a pragmatist you know i enjoy a beer i even enjoy a couple of beers sometimes and uh so one of the things i, I tend to recommend to my patients and to myself is that if i'm going to enjoy having a drink i'll probably try and do it in the earlier part of the evening or perhaps if you're going to go out with your friends for the evening maybe don't combine a couple of drinks with get, getting to bed at one in the morning because clearly you've then got a particularly toxic combination. Yeah, and I think the key uh, is about, you know, not making... I think that, you know, there are some people... You know, if your sleep is an issue, then it's about focusing on these specific things. So you can go through periods of your life, and I tell my patients where you're doing things that are your routine, you've slept fine, and then suddenly your sleep gets interrupted for whatever reason, whatever trigger, then it's the time to then focus on those things that actually, okay, what? how much alcohol are you drinking? When are you drinking? How much caffeine are you doing? And... All of it interacts in the sense that if you've got, you know, for example, if patients that I see are suddenly having more stress in their lives, even though they may have been fine for years having two cups of coffee a day, 
I will say, listen, I, what I want you to do right now is reduce your caffeine intake because when you are stressed, mm. caffeine makes it worse. Right? You may have been fine three months ago, but right now you're going through a lot of stress and it's making it worse. So just focus on these little things. And actually, it's really interesting. They come back, you know, in a follow up a few months later and say, you know, these things really helped. Whatever it was, it just it was it made it easier for me to combat this problem by cutting out caffeine and reducing my alcohol intake. So absolutely. I think we've got to think about it also in a bit more of a nuanced way. That's a really helpful example, Asim. I think that reflects the fact that life is complex and changes and the people that we are changes as well, absolutely. as it were. Not very really dramatically, but you know what I mean. All the time. Our circumstances yeah. change. Yeah. And the things that we once took for granted you know, might change because of variable things, including our age yes. and well, everything you know, you else that's going earlier, on. Well, I was lives. thinking, Richard, about the whole, you know, the catch-up sleep on the weekend. I used to do that as well as a student. Never was a problem for me. I felt great. I could do that during the week and not sleep as much and then align on the weekend. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, there may be some small effects on the body, but in your 20s, it probably doesn't have that much of an effect. It's not that big a deal. But when you get mm. older, when you're plus 40... Mm. The body just changes. It's just part of the, it's an unfortunate part of the aging process, but it's something I think we need to be, if anything, more proactive about these sorts of things as we get older. Of course, prevention is better than cure, but it, again, if people who are listening think, "Oh, I'm fine," and you know, I'm, I'm you know, wait till you hit forty, and then, <laughs> and then you'll see what happens to your body, and then you might have to think, make changes which were things that you just took for granted before are now a problem for you. Lessons that you and I have clearly both had to learn. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to mention, Asim, and I'm sure that you and I have both seen this in our clinical practice, is you know we've talked about sleep hygiene tonight uh, and, and lifestyle, and, and we you know we could talk about other things like keeping your bedroom cool and dark and making it a place you just go to sleep. But one of the reasons that many people talk to me about sleep, and I'm sure you've seen this too, is actually because there are other things going on in their life which are causing that sleep to be disrupted. You know they're not neglecting their themselves as such, but typically mental health problems are a common example of that yeah. and clearly uh, a person may be suffering from poor sleep because of that and so far we've talked about practical things that you can do to make those adjustments but as, as, as we begin to wind this up from your perspective how do you broach those conversations if you sense there's a could be an underlying mental health issue how do you talk to that about patients do you make any particular recommendations for example Hey Richard, as you know, it's all based upon individual patients and you know some of my patients of course are going to need extra help I want to say extra help, you know, we're talking about lifestyle here and all these things are crucial to think about as you move forward. But people can get in situations that are so bad that they need medications. I'm talking about, you know, antidepressants, for example. Mm. Uh, and if I pick up clinical depression or they develop true clinical depression where, you know, as you know, you've got these persistent symptoms for at least two weeks, you know, several different symptoms. Often I will then give them a kickstart and say, listen, you've got to a situation which is quite bad. You need a medication. It will start to help you to feel better within two to three weeks. I still want you to focus on the lifestyle stuff, not to just take this as a substitute, but think about that. But it can, it can have a massive impact on people, you know, and they can just stay on. As you know, Richard, you don't need to necessarily stay on for very long if you can ideally get them off it in three to six months once they've come out of that deep, dark hole they've found themselves in. So I think, it, it, again, it's individual based. When it comes to other external factors, often people, when you explore it, I will ask them, as part of my conversation, all my cardiac patients, you know, I, I talk about stress and sleep, but I will, I will ask them about how's their, how's their personal life? How's their relationship? Mm. How's their family life going? What's going on at work? 
you know, I will explore that a little bit. And they will often divulge it. And suddenly they'll, you know, sometimes they'll, some people are very tearful and suddenly like, okay, you've hit a nerve there. It's something that's been brewing for a long time. I think it's our job as doctors to try and identify those root causes. And even just sometimes having that conversation or them suddenly opening up to you as a doctor and, and something they've been hiding or not been, to, been able to talk about with anybody, that in itself can be very therapeutic for patients. But it also then leads, allows them to think a little bit more about, okay, I've got a situation because of this, this and this, you know, something with work. Is there something I can do to change those external circumstances? And obviously, it's not easy to capture all of that or give people all the best solutions within one consultation or conversation. But you can at least start that process. Absolutely. Really, really important, I think. And, and I would just recommend anyone listening to this, if you think that your mental health could be a factor in affecting your sleep do talk to someone about it whether it's um, your friends your family or your doctor and really important to have that conversation yeah. and i think richard on that as well i think we need to say if this has been going for a long time with many people you can get to a state of where actually despite you trying with your best efforts all these different things that we talk about your sleep is still in a bad way this often can indicate that th things are more significantly wrong in terms of the biochemistry of, you know, you've got to a point where your serotonin is depleted, you're clinically depressed, and you will need help. You know, all the advice we give you at that point may do nothing, right, at that point to help you. You may well need medications. And I think people should not be afraid to reach out and speak to, you know, uh, their GP or, or their healthcare practitioner about it because you know that can make a big difference to getting you out of that hole that's a really helpful note on which to finish Asim I've really enjoyed this conversation thank you very much for your time today I hope the listeners have also enjoyed it I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon but today um, thank you for your time we'll speak soon thank you Richard my pleasure take care you've been listening to Wellbeing for Real Life with me Dr Richard Pyle if you've enjoyed this episode please give it a nice review and tell other people about it if you'd like to learn more, my book Fit for Purpose is out now, published by Harper Inspire and available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. You can also follow me on Twitter, YouTube, and my website, wellbeingforreal.life. This podcast was recorded at Monkey Nut Audiobooks. Until next time, take care of yourself. <laughs>